0: completely you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me such knowledge is too wonderful for me it is so high that I cannot attain it where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence if I ascend to heaven you're there If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. This is one of our sacred psalms. Thanks be to God.
1: A reading from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. I thank my God every time I think of you. In every prayer I utter, as I plead on your behalf, I rejoice at the way you have all continually helped promote the good news from the very first day. And I'm sure of this much, that God, who has begun the good work in you, will carry it through to completion, right up to the day of Christ Jesus. My prayer is that your love may abound more and more, both in understanding and in wealth of experience so that with a clear conscience and blameless conduct, you may learn to value the things that really matter up to the very day of Christ. It's my wish that you be found rich in the harvest of justice, which Jesus Christ has ripened in you to the glory and praise of God. This is one of our sacred texts. Thanks Thanks be to God.
2: What does one say on their last Sunday? in their last sermon before moving away from a community that has meant so much to them. Surely this isn't a time for a run-of-the-mill sermon, not a time for another biblical short story or exhortation, not a time to say anything new before walking out the door. This is, I believe, a time for gratitude It is a time like any other time for telling stories.
3: As we thought about what we wanted to say, what was left on our hearts to share on this last Sunday, we were reminded of a question that we asked the search committee when we were interviewing for this job. We asked them to tell us the stories of the times they had felt Northminster was most fully alive at its best as a faith community. And so we decided to make our own list of the times over the last two and a half years that that we have been most grateful for this community, that we have seen it most alive. And after making that list and capping it at a nice round number of 10, we realized that this was the sermon that we wanted to preach today. And so that's what we're doing. Northminster, these are 10 stories, in no particular order, of the times we have felt most alive, most proud, and most grateful for you. So number one.
2: In our first year, as climate anxiety was reaching a fever pitch in the public conversation and in my own mind, I felt it was necessary to preach about it explicitly, to situate the issue in the grander narrative of what it meant to be the people of God. Now, I'd never been in the position to do something like that before, but I knew from experience that there would probably be some pushback. When I mentioned this, some members of the Coordinating Council suggested it might be a good idea to hold some kind of debrief session afterwards, uh, which I thought was a good idea. So Claire and I planned a talkback tea and coffee for three o'clock that day. Well, I preached the sermon, I went home, I came back to set up the big classroom down the hall. I put out a Keurig, a kettle, some mugs and some tea bags, and I waited. In my mind, I was waiting for the angry people to start filing in. I was waiting for the two or three irate people, hoping that they'd criticize me for being too political to my face rather than to others. It was important, I knew, but it didn't mean that I was looking forward to it. I wondered if I'd be able to listen patiently and generously to people's generalized anxiety while still holding space for my own specific anxiety for the planet. Mara was the first to show up, which kind of surprised me, and then Patty, and then Tom, and slowly the room filled with people that I didn't expect to be there, didn't expect to be upset, and eventually I took a breath and I got started. I tested the waters with a few easy questions. How did you feel this morning? What made you uncomfortable? And the conversation progressed in fits and spurts, no one really being forthcoming with their anxiety, until someone eventually spoke up. Listen they said. We didn't come here because we were upset about the sermon. We came here because we're upset about climate change and we are here to figure out what we can do about it. <laughs> and from there, we started having a very difficult, I mean, very different conversation. That was probably the first time I knew that this place did not live and die on congregational fears and anxieties. It wouldn't be held captive by the fear of talking about hard things. That's when I knew that this was a place where willing people could be equipped to actually do the work of the church. So may this congregation always be so bold and open. Just a few weeks later, we did the same thing. This time though, it was about immigration. And that brings us to number two.
3: So in September of 2019, the lectionary gave us a passage from the book of Hebrews, reading, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. With the new information that had recently been released about the surprising number of ICE detainees being held in Louisiana beginning that year, it seemed clear to me that the church had to talk about the biblical call to sacred hospitality and how that translates to welcome and care for the immigrant. The story played out in much the same way as it had before. We scheduled a talkback session for that afternoon, and I psyched myself up for the conflict to come, but it never came. A dozen or so faces entered the room, each one ready and waiting to discuss not how I had the nerve to get so political, but what we could possibly do to make a difference. A few weeks later, the answer to that question began to take shape, as some other local advocates began organizing a protest that would call attention to the conditions at the detention center here in Monroe. After that came an organizing session hosted in our sanctuary for those wanting to learn about how to be a more effective advocate. After that came the sustained ministry spearheaded by Mara and Claire Carrington and supported by several others to care for immigrants both while they're detained through letter writing and as they're released, providing starter kits and transportation to help them on their way. May this congregation continue to be a place where sacred hospitality and care for those in need take precedence over perceived political differences every time. And, of course, we experienced your hospitality and grace firsthand soon after we arrived, which brings us to number three.
2: So I've known pastors who have literally gone their entire careers without getting sick and having to miss a Sunday last minute. (laughs) But not
4: us.
2: (laughs) Somehow, in our drive to be more extraordinary than our peers, we managed three in our first year. Our kids were in preschool and beyond generous in the quantity of infectious diseases they would bring home to us. (laughs) And so it came to pass that on three different Sundays, one or both of us found ourselves entirely out of commission, unable to preach or get out of bed, really, and unwilling to be as generous with our germs as our kids had been with theirs. (laughs) The first time, it was Claire's turn to preach, but as she lay incapacitated with a stomach bug, I picked up her sermon and took her place at the last minute. I had minimal time for editing, or adapting, and all things considered, I think it went pretty well. Until, from the pulpit, I found myself reading the words, When Zach and I started dating. (laughs) The second time, it was me who couldn't make it, struck down with some flu strain that made me dizzy even to stand. And the third time, both of us woke up with a stomach bug, and this time only with a half-baked sermon that the illness had not given us a chance to finish. That time, we had to text Debbie. We said, look, we're dying. There's a Frederick Buechner book on our desk. I need you to open it to page 47 and just start reading. And Debbie handled it like a pro, because, of course, she is a pro. And each of these times, I braced myself in the aftermath to hear somebody complain, to hear somebody come in with that age-old, you only work one day a week. (laughs) But they never did. On the contrary, Brian and Josh actually offered to stop by the house on their way to church and bring James and Peter to Sunday school, giving us a little time to recover. Northminster, you valued our health and well-being over performance and polish, and that is rarer than you might imagine. May this congregation always value its people above its presentation. Number four.
3: Speaking of our kids, I love them, but uh, y'all, they are exhausting. (laughs) And as it turns out, I'm not the only parent who feels that way. One of the most selfish ministries I have ever invested in is our monthly parents' night meeting. And even so, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Because as it turns out, there is so much life in gathering together as adults with childcare so you can focus on forming complete sentences to be in community, figuring out how to parent your children with progressive values here in the South when so few people around you share those values. So as we came together for our third or fourth meeting in the spring of 2019, I remember hearing Casey Roberts say something to the effect of, I live for these meetings. (laughs) And she wasn't the only one. Um, There are folks participating in that group who have only ever joined us on Sunday morning once or twice, and I think that's a beautiful thing. It's yet another way that Northminster is able to offer a safe haven, to offer home to those who have felt like they didn't have a place to call home. So although the pandemic did take some of the wind out of our sails in that group as we were unable to offer childcare, the one thing that made those nights so valuable, there is hope on the horizon for the parents of Northminster uh, as those meetings are starting back up in July. And may this congregation always be a place that offers home to those who need it most. Number five.
2: So churches can be pretty touchy about their music. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. (laughs) Coming in, it was one of the things that gave me pause as my personal musical language is more rooted in indie folk rock. Even if that wasn't the musical language of this congregation though, it was important to me to work with a church that didn't make an idol out of any particular kind of music, a church that could instead focus on posture and language on the space created and the story told regardless of genre. Only a few weeks in, I was still getting a feel for how worship worked in this place, and I had an idea for a song that I thought might work well for the text. The only catch was that it was an experimental rock song from a band called Gunger, Not the kind of thing one might typically hear in this service. (laughs) Walking into staff meeting, I held on to the idea loosely, understandably skeptical about what kind of response it might receive, but the next morning, not only was the song in the order of worship, but D.H. had emailed me a demo track for a choral arrangement that he had taken the initiative to compose overnight. It was astounding, and over time, we would come to repeat that same pattern again and again with Leonard Cohen and Regina Specter and the liturgists and Sarah Borellis and you too and dear Evan Hansen, each one respected not on the basis of genre but in its own merit, on its ability to remind us who we are and that we are loved. And that's something that I've loved about working with this team. May this congregation always foster its spirit of playfulness and honor its legacy of creativity. Number six.
3: One of the things I have appreciated most here is the way this congregation approaches matters of faith, not with a spirit of judgment, but a spirit of curiosity. So in the fall of 2019, we watched that unfold through a six-week study of Barbara Brown Taylor's book, Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. And as we waded through her stories from teaching a college course on comparative religions, we marveled together at all of the beautiful through lines that Taylor found between her experience of the divine and those of the faiths they studied. And then we decided to see for ourselves. And so in September of that year, we took a church field trip to Jackson, Mississippi, along with two other progressive Baptist churches from the area to visit the International Museum of Muslim Cultures. So along with Northside Baptist from Clinton and uh, the other Northminster Baptist from Jackson, we took in an exhibit on covenants and coexistence among Muslims, Christians, and Jews and approached it all in a spirit of awe for the ways that God is revealed to each of us. The value of interfaith dialogue is a significant one here, but so is the value of cooperation with like-minded churches. I remember on the drive to Jackson, carpooling with Claire Carrington and hearing her remark at how surprised and delighted she was to find that there were other churches like ours, if not in our city, then in our region. And I never have quite figured out how to tell the joke that seems to be waiting to pull out of that story of two Northminsters and a North Side taking their church members to a Muslim museum in the South. But regardless, my hope is that this congregation will continue to be a place where curiosity is cultivated as a spiritual discipline. Number seven.
2: Thanksgiving, 2019. Just months before the world went into lockdown, Northminster celebrated 30 years with a night of storytelling and very good food. I gave a quick intro and I yielded the floor to the storytellers. Then I listened as Craig talked about Northminster's roots, as Casey talked about this being the first church that she visited that did not shame, but celebrated with her, as Debbie talked about never wanting to work in a church ever again until Northminster. I listened to Dibble tell stories. I listened to D.H. Singh, to Deam and Mara talk about finally finding a church that wasn't intimidated by the arts and education. I listened to Jim Files talk about the expanding of his interfaith horizons, and Mark talk about what it meant to be trusted to preach again after a rocky history with a fundamentalist seminary. I listened to Susan Curry talk about how many times we've almost been expelled from church camp entirely. <laughs> And to Mackenzie Grassi, talk about what it meant to finally find a pastor who would not only marry them, but celebrate their family as it deserved to be celebrated. And listening to these stories, I knew that I was among a community of sanctuary. I knew this was a place of healing and restoration among fellow exiles and ex-evangelicals. Together, we were a tribe of outcasts, bonding over the shared trauma of having been pushed to the outskirts of church and together creating a space for honesty and for authenticity that loved without condition or reserve. For those of us burned by the worst of what church can be, may this congregation always be a place of safety and healing. Number eight.
3: The worst of what church can be hit home pretty hard in our first year here as the Houston Chronicle released reporting on the widespread sexual abuse within Southern Baptist churches for the past several decades that had gone unacknowledged and unaddressed. Now, Northminster doesn't have any official ties to the SBC, but so many of us have friends and family who do. Not to mention that the Alliance of Baptists was born out of the SBC in the late 80s, and so their pain was our pain too. But in the wake of that incredibly painful revelation, we witnessed the opposite, witnessed the best of what church can be. When Northminster folks gathered with passion and energy to answer the question, if the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better, How can we practice the better here? There were sexual abuse prevention policies drafted. There were educational goals set. And dearest to my heart, there was a play. Daughters of Eve was born out of that vision of practicing the better, of using our platform figuratively and literally to challenge scriptural interpretations that harm women, and to lift up the voices of women in scripture who are often overlooked, whose voices are silenced simply by our lack of attention. At the dress rehearsal for Daughters of Eve, that fateful week in March of 2020, I remember vividly the look on Beth Mayfield's face as the whole cast squeezed together here at the front steps in our final formation for the closing lines. She said, "'Do you think we should be standing this close together?' And I thought she was overreacting. (laughs) But not 48 hours later, we would make the call that Daughters of Eve would be postponed indefinitely, as would our in-person services. But watching this community come alive for all the months that led up to that moment, with so much involvement across demographics and generations for the sake of a more just and a kinder world, That is one of the moments I have been most grateful for this congregation. May you continue to be a place that goes beyond the criticism of the bad and finds a way to practice the better. And that brings us to number nine.
2: When the Coordinating Council made the decision to suspend all in-person gatherings in an attempt to hashtag slow the spread, We knew little about the spreading pandemic. At the time, the decision honestly felt precarious. None of us were sure exactly what the threat was or if it was that serious, though suspending in-person gatherings certainly felt like it was giving it a violent shove into serious. It became real for me then. None of us were sure how to protect ourselves, how to protect others, and least of all, how to continue to be the church while stripped of everything that had visibly identified us for so long. Now, at that juncture, I could easily see what could have happened. I can easily see a congregation rapidly overwhelmed by anxiety, venting it in the worst ways and the worst directions possible, and that would have been totally understandable given the circumstances. But it's not what happened. Not at all. Instead, in trying to figure out how to do this, as I ran into technical difficulty after technical difficulty and the grainy images of your pastors finally stumbled their way onto your computer screens, you gave us nothing but support. You shared nothing but encouragement and kindness and gratitude for something, anything that could still bind us together in some way, somehow. But that was not all. Without hesitation, you started moving Before long, Pat began to show up with homemade masks, essential and rare in that moment, so we could distribute them to our first responders, Joanne at Conway, Mark at GoCare, Char at the Methodist Children's Home. And then Beth took it upon herself to create Sunday school packets for Northminster's kids, something of a structure and connection in this mass drift. And people came out of the woodwork, volunteering to drive and deliver them all the way out to Frenchman's Bend. But again... That was not all. Not only did this congregation respond to the social needs that arose, but you continued to create. Even in the midst of anxiety and uncertainty, under DH's leadership and editing skills, you put together not one, but two online talent shows, and you could almost hear the collective sigh of relief and appreciation for this thing that made us feel for just a minute like we were together again. And that was really something. May this congregation always follow the Spirit, knowing it to be more valuable than any form or appearance that this church might take. And eventually, slowly, haltingly, we came out of that diaspora, and that's where we get to number 10.
3: Number 10 is where we personally have lived in these last few weeks as Zach and I shared with all of you, that we were feeling pulled towards something new and different, something that would require us to leave this place that we love. We were afraid of how you would respond, of the disappointment we would see in your faces, and of the possibility that the timing of it would frustrate you so much that that would be all anybody could see. You might think that we didn't know you at all. Because instead, what we have found is such remarkable grace. Of course, there has been disappointment and probably frustration, but you haven't laid it all on us. And that is a gift that we will always cherish. And instead, you've jumped into action. Your leadership, hard at work already, charting a path toward what comes next for Northminster. And you've stopped us at the door to say things about bravery and following where the Spirit leads. And of course you have, because Northminster has always been a place that values the courage to do something different, to branch out from what is known into the unknown, into the wilderness, following the leading of that Spirit as elusive as the wind, and trusting all the time that home is waiting on the other side. May you continue to trust that spirit into the future.
2: After recording the highlights of Jesus's life, the last verse and the last chapter of the Gospel of John reads, Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose there would not even be room in the whole world for the scrolls that could be written. This is not a complete list of the beautiful things that Northminster has done over the past two and a half years. Without standing up here and reading from the directory A to Z, we could not touch every meaningful interaction we have had with the people of this congregation, every dinner and coffee and pool and playground, every office and hospital room that we shared. But we hope in this glimpse, we have begun to say something of the thank you that you deserve the thank you for giving us a chance, for giving us your honesty, for allowing us to travel alongside you in this season of our pilgrim journey towards life.
3: Northminster, it is clear that the Spirit of God has begun a good work in this place. And we are sure of this much, that the one who began the good work in you will carry it through to completion. As you go about that work, may you continue to lean in to the truest and most beautiful story you can imagine for yourselves, for this community, and for the world. And may you find in each other the courage to make it come true. Amen.
5: When Frederick Buechner told his aunt that he had entered the ministry, she said to him, I I hear you've entered the ministry. Have you gone crazy or just been (laughs) ill-advised? After 62 years in the ministry, I understand that question. Claire and Zachary likely know what I'm talking about. I smile and uh, sometimes laugh out loud at that comment, but seriously I speak those words with reverence far more than I do with humor. Ministry is diverse in its callings and demands sensitivity to people in need of help because of situations in life and death, laughter and tears. We're losing two ministers who have experienced the jolt of a divine tug toward change. They came to us with visions energy, dedication that have brought new people into our congregation, led us in prayers as intimate as the people with whom we sit this morning, and as broad and comprehensive as a world starving for justice, grace, and love. Claire and Zachary have had to do ministry during one of the greatest crises in our nation. A pandemic in which people have been filled with fear, watched friends and family members die, knowing they could not enter as usual people's houses, or stand beside their bedsides. However, the ministers brought skills, ideas, and hard work that enabled our congregation to convene for divine worship every Sunday. Not only for us but literally for people all over the United States. Skillfully operating Zoom, which I didn't even know what was. (laughs) They provided multiple ministries for our church and for our community. And every week, faithfully, they have reminded us that we are seen and we are loved. With um, admiration, I must share with you two specific observations uh, about Zachary and Claire. First, each of them, while carrying out responsibilities here, Made time to listen to voices, some mystical and others with clarity. Struggled with what to do about ministries that were summoning them to another life. Made difficult decisions. And then, thank God, they. Straight up, told this church the truth about the ministries for which they now need to prepare. The church, this church, has responded to them as the congregation needs always to respond to everybody embracing a new way of serving, saying, Yes. Get on with the ministry to which you're being called. And and if we can't go with you in it, we will support you, encourage you, pray for you, and ask you to let us know how you're doing along new paths. The second observation I share about these two pastors Is how amid meetings, studying, reading, sermon writing, phone calls, meditation. They modeled how to raise two precious young boys. On March 10, 2019 during the installation of these two ministers into this church. I said, bless you, Claire. And I said, bless you, Zachary. And today, this whole church says to both of you, as you go, We bless you and love you.